Hi, I'm Jeff Hendrickson, and welcome to the Sage Warrior Gentleman Podcast, where we explore the three facets of the modern mature man and discuss leadership, chivalry, and style so that you can continue to bring your best to the world. Through interviews with men from all walks of life, some I've known and worked with in various industries over the years, you'll learn some valuable lessons about modern men and their struggles and triumphs. So this is going to be a solo episode with me. I'm going to intersperse these in um, as I can with the great interviews that we've been doing with, uh, with some really fascinating men. We've got a lot more of those coming up, but uh, tonight, and this episode is going to be about pivots, embracing pivots. It's something that I've had to do my entire life. And I thought about this as I was walking and listening to a, another podcast of all things tonight. I learn a lot from podcasts and from audio courses that I take. And uh, this idea this is something that I had thought about before, but it wasn't until really listening to this lesson tonight that it made sense for me uh, to do this as well. So embracing the pivot. And what do I mean by that? You know, in, in life and everything that we do, we have challenges all the time. And if we're set on a course that we believe is the absolute one and only course for us to take in our lives, sometimes we miss opportunities that are just maybe a little bit to the left, just maybe a little bit to the right. It's possible that they're there, but if we've got this mindset that, no, it has to be this way, then we're going to miss those opportunities. For me, pivots started really at a... At a at a very young age, um, and again, I was I was thinking about this as I was walking and, and how I would actually record this episode, and I'm going to say that probably one of my first pivots was from playing soccer at a parochial school in Fairborn, Ohio, and then moving on to a public high school, which didn't have soccer teams at that point in time. There was only football, basketball, baseball, field hockey, whatever, maybe, maybe, you know, track and field, stuff like that. But public high schools back in the 70s did not have soccer teams. Only the Catholic schools did. So I came up, you know, started playing soccer at maybe like age, I don't know, maybe it was 10, I, I think, you know, when we, when we take a look at soccer players today, that's, that's really late. I started playing soccer at about 10 years old, played through the rest of my grade school, was a pretty good soccer player. Actually, I'll say I was a very good soccer player. Uh, there were like four or five of us uh, on the team that actually played in two different, two different leagues that we had. I, CYO, um, Catholic Youth Organization was one, and then SAY, Soccer Association for Youth, um, were, the, were, the, uh, were the soccer divisions and leagues back then. And again, we're talking back in the 70s, right? So... Now, I'm faced with the fact of going to a public high school. Uh, there was a Catholic high school, but it was in Dayton, Ohio. And uh, my dad didn't see any reason for paying for a high school where I had to be bused to every day, as opposed to just walking three blocks and being at the high school where I was. And I didn't know what to do. And talking to my dad one day, and he says, well, join the football team. You, you should be okay joining the football team. You're you're tall and you're fast. You should be able to make the football team. So I joined the football team. And one day at practice, the coach said, who's going to be our kicker? And nobody raised their hands. And I finally did. And he said, 
you know how to kick? And I said, well, coach, I've been playing soccer since I was about eight years old. Okay, you're the kicker. Had no idea how to kick a, so a, a football at that point in time. I knew how to kick a soccer ball, but I sure as hell didn't know how to kick a football. So gave me a couple of tees, gave me a bag full of balls, and said, start practicing. So my dad and I, every single day after he got home from work, we would climb this Big, tall fence. What are they, like nine-foot fences, eight-and-a-half-foot fences, something like that? My dad would climb this with me after work, and we would go into the football field, and I would practice. And my dad, and this is, this is before we had any kind of technology like we have today, my dad was my video camera. He would watch the way my foot hit the ground, the way the ball went when my foot was in a certain position, and... By the time I finished out my uh, freshman year, I was one of the best place kickers, high school place kickers in the state of Ohio. Went on to uh, start varsity my sophomore year, and between my brother and I, who followed up after me, uh, I think we hold like every single kicking record at that high school there is except for one. I think one kid finally broke one of our records uh, before that high school became defunct. So that was my first pivot, right? I, I, I really wanted to keep playing soccer. I did not want to stop playing soccer, but unfortunately there was no way for me to do that at that point in time, so I made a pivot to football, okay? So fast forward just a little bit more, and um, I am working at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base as a clerk typist and going to school at Wright State University studying computer engineering. And that didn't last very long because my math was really poor. I've always been a writer. I've always been a storyteller. Math was never my thing. And in computer engineering, you had to have calculus and physics and I, whatever else there was. And I just couldn't do it. So I really didn't want to stay in the tiny town of Fairborn, Ohio, very much longer anyway. And I just happened to be in a clothing store. Um, I guess a little bit of the backstory there is that my mom and dad both grew up on farms in Indiana and were dirt poor. They both, they both grew up in, in the Depression and were dirt poor. And my mom wanted my brother and I to be the best-dressed kids that there were. She wanted us to have nice clothes. I got in trouble all the time because of, of my nice clothes at school. Um, and that's just the way it was. She was constantly <laughs> getting phone calls from the principal of the school and had to come and take me home and put me into some clothes that were reasonable. But, I mean, these are clothes that she spent hard-earned dollars on now. You know, we're talking when I'm in grade school, late 60s, early 70s, and people weren't making a whole lot of money back then. So she was spending her hard-earned money to make sure that I looked nice in this Catholic school because she couldn't wear jeans. Right? There were a lot of things that, that public school kids could wear that we couldn't wear in a Catholic school. The girls all wore uniforms, and the boys had to dress nicely. And I was dressed nicely, but apparently most of the things were outside of the dress code. So at one point in time, I am in a department store in Dayton, Ohio, and I'm talking to this guy, and I had been going in, and I had become friendly with him, you know, because it's the only place for me to buy clothes that I, that I really liked. And one day he said... What do you do? Well, I, I work at Wright Pat. I'm a clerk typist at, at Wright Pat. What do you really want to do? I don't know. I, I really like fashion. I, I've kind of been thinking about that for a while. He goes, well, what are you thinking about? So I told him about these fashion 
buying schools that I had been thinking about in Florida because I saw them in GQ magazine. He said, no, 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 man. You want to go to New York City and you want to go to FIT. What's that? Fashion Institute of Technology, dude. That's where you want to go. So he brought me in an FIT catalog. And a friend of mine, a good buddy of mine, Steve Van Zant, who uh, you'll hear on an interview uh, one night sometime soon, phenomenal artist, taught me how to draw and how to sketch and how to draw clothes and how to draw the proportions of the body. And uh, before I was getting ready to go to FIT, my mom's boss, who was one of the really big, super important guys at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base at that time, asked me to come in and see him. And I sat down at his desk and he said, so, going to New York City? Yes, sir. Yes, I am. And I hear that you're going to go study fashion. Yes, sir, I am. He goes, well, what's your goal? And I said, well, I, my, my goal is to win the Maurice Biederman Award, graduate first in my class and win the Maurice Biederman Award. He said, where'd you write that down? I said, Mr. Greenwood, I, I, I don't have that written down anywhere. And this guy, this GS-16, one of the most important men at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, pulls a sheet of paper out of his desk, slides it across the desk to me, hands me a pen, and says, go ahead and write that down, Jeff. I'll wait. So I got no choice. I'm in, I'm in, I'm in front of this man who my mom works for. I write down my goal. And he said, there. Any goal that's worth achieving is worth writing down. That's going to make it happen for you. What did I do? I went to FIT. I graduated first in my class. I won the Maurice Biederman Award. My mom and dad got to come to New York City and see me walk across the stage at Radio City Music Hall and receive my award, the Maurice Biederman Award for Academic Achievement. I then went on to travel the world um, as a textile and clothing designer. I have co-designed a line with a really good buddy of mine from school called Blue Khaki. We showed in the 2003 big New York City fashion shows. We actually made it into that and got a standing ovation. There's more to that story, but I won't go in that direction because we're here to talk about pivots. So I have been in and out of the clothing industry and in and out of the tech industry a few different times. Because I've been able to pivot, I, I, I started in tech at a point in time where the fashion industry was really getting hit hard, and I lost a job. I had a three-year-old and a newborn and a mortgage and a car that I could no longer pay for. And so friends of mine said, dude, go to school and study tech. You've got this crazy weird mind where you, you, you understand things that other people just don't get. You have this ability to take things that other people think are completely disjointed and somehow or another you figure out how to put them all together. So I did. I went back to school. I took a course called Client Server Technologies. I started in the tech industry. And once again, this is another pivot from fashion into tech within a very short period of time was traveling internationally again, teaching what I learned how to do. And what I, at the very beginning, it was knowledge management, which was a big thing. Um, I was the first guru for a knowledge management product called Autonomy. I went to Cambridge, England at the insistence of the owner. 
of autonomy, owner and founder of autonomy. He said, this guy needs to get over there and get some advanced training. He knows more about this than anybody does in the United States right now, and he needs to keep learning. So I went to Cambridge, England for a week and did that. Um, I have since gone into business intelligence. I am now a UX strategist right now for one of the largest aviation companies uh, in the world. And what I do is go out and help people figure out where their problems are and then teach them how to fix those problems. So it's been one, not, not my final pivot. I'll, I'll still tell you about another pivot too. Um, it's very fascinating work. I, I, I really enjoy it. I have met some of the coolest people around the world doing this and have made some really phenomenal and really good friends. So because of my up and down in life, um, I have not been able to establish a very big nest egg. So one of the other things that I know that I need to do, and I've been doing this for a long time too, I'll be one of those overnight successes that took me like 15 years to get to, right? Everybody will look at me and think, wow, he did that so fast. Nope, I've been studying. I've been trying for the longest time to do this. And, and, and this, is, this is internet business. This is internet marketing. Um, I've always been a teacher. I have a course on Udemy. Uh, called um, uh, UX, uh, I don't even remember what it's called, sorry, but it's on Udemy, where I teach UX and design thinking, and I'm working on more courses for that right now. I'm also a self-published author. If you like to read, then go on Amazon and look for Grand Magic Countenance Number 5 by Jeff Hendrickson. I think you'll like it. Um, I've had quite a few friends read it. Um, everybody seems to like it so far. Uh, it's a pretty cool story. Took me 10 years to write. I wrote most of it in about a year, and then it sat for a long time, and then I finally came back to it and went that way. I have other stories that I want to publish. I have other courses that I want to create. Um, one of my good friends one time introduced me to a group of people as a storyteller, and I had never really thought of myself like that, but I suppose I am a storyteller. So... I guess moral of the story here and the lesson in this is to not be afraid to change direction, to change course if you need to. Don't be so set on everything that you don't see those opportunities on either side of you. Um, another big part of this podcast and why I'm doing this podcast is, is for people to learn through stories and to learn through the hard-won wins of other men. Um, if you've listened to some of the interviews, you know that as several of my friends have said, I don't look at those things as mistake. They were just course corrections of one sort. They were, they were learning opportunities. And I'll tell you right now that if you look at life that way, you will start to learn things faster because you're not, you're not stuck in this rigid, really, really linear blinders way on of learning things. One of the things that I, you know, when I'm, when I'm teaching what I teach, the UX strategy that I do, and, and, and I'm telling you that I do this with Fortune 500 companies, with Fortune 50 companies, with some of the largest companies in the world, I do this, and it's getting them to think about their business in a little bit different way. And I kind of had to do that with my business too. I just started off as a user interface designer, UI designer. 
But soon I was thrown into the water, into the deep end, so to speak, where somebody said, you need to fix this because it's not working very well. Okay, well, what's wrong with it? I don't know, but they just don't like it. So it didn't take me very long to figure out that if I was going to design the right application, I really needed to know what people wanted and expected. And that's where my UX research uh, career began. And I've been doing that now for, I don't know, 15, 16 years, something like that. So. Learn from me if you can. Um, I'll be talking to a lot of other men. I'll be doing more of these shorter uh, solo episodes with me. So uh, thank you very much for listening. Um, and uh, come back, please. Uh, subscribe if you would. If you know of anybody who you think might be good for me to interview, please get in touch with me somehow or another and uh, let me know. All right. Thanks very much. So, thanks for joining us for this episode of the Sage Warrior Gentleman Podcast. And remember that you can join us and get a free guide over at sagewarriorgentleman.com. We'd love to have you join our conversation and please help us spread the word if you feel this could help someone you know and care about.